Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1204. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 11. This is being recorded on September 15th of the year 2021. Now, before we get into the program, three links, one of which will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by our uh, brilliant contributing editor, Terra Fractal, that's P-T-E-R-R-A-F-R-A-C-T-Y-L, also uh, occasional other intelligent commenters. Another of the links will enable you to subscribe to the WFMU podcast. Sister Station WFMU is podcasting the program, so if podcasts are the best way for you to consume, for the record, there is a link for you to click on, and WFMU will podcast the program for and or to you. And last, but most assuredly not least, another of the links will enable you to obtain the 32-gigabyte flash drive, which has... Uh, all of my 42 years on the air, 42 years worth of work on the air, plus a mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. Now, we're going to continue with uh, our uh, presentation of not only the history of modern China, but frankly, uh, one of the foundational elements not only of world dynamics today, but of the uh, what might be termed the American deep state. Because as far removed as much of what I talk about might, in this series might appear to be from the things here and now, nothing could be further from the truth. Indeed, as we get into the concluding stages of this series and talk about the Sung family and the evolution of the China lobby, uh, allied journalistic, uh, financial, industrial, and political elements. We are talking about the evolution of a critical portion of what might be termed the deep state. Uh, very quickly, uh, the Sung family, S-O-O-N-G, is a remarkable family <clears throat> that have had a tremendous influence on modern China and also on the U.S. Charlie Sung was a native of China who was educated in the U.S. Uh, at the, uh, well, by American missionaries to China. He had several children. He had three sons and three daughters. The sons, T.V. Sung, arguably the most important. Uh, we will be talking about him at great length in this program. At one point, he was the richest man in the world. He held various posts uh, in the Kuomintang government of Chiang Kai-shek. He was finance minister. He was foreign minister. He was premier. And he is a tremendously important man. He was, uh, for quite some time, the richest man in the world and had much to do with shaping not only uh, the China of Chiang Kai-shek, but also the world that came afterward, in particular the China lobby. 
He had two brothers, T.L. and T.A. Sung. Uh, T.L. became the administrator of American Wendley's, first in China and then in the U.S., as we have seen and as we will see again today. Uh, much of the aid that America gave to China before, during, and after World War II was diverted into uh, corruption. The <coughs> Japanese invaders and our enemies in World War II got their hands on a lot of it. Much of it was sold into the black market by Kuomintang officials and generals, and much of it was diverted by the Sung family themselves. Much of their enormous fortune came from the diversion of American Lend-Lease. We took a look last week at uh, the a shipment, I should say, of 60 American battle tanks that was supposed to be shipped to China. Supposedly, <clears throat> the freighter on which they were shipped was torpedoed and sunk. In fact, <laughs> there were never 60 tanks made. They would, the money for that went straight into the coffers of TV Sung. His brother, T.L. Sung, was instrumentally involved in that and became a clandestine post-World War II agent for the Treasury Department. More about that in a couple of weeks. There was also another brother educated at Harvard called T. A. Sung. He also helped in uh, the administration of uh, Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang. There were three sisters, one of whom, Qingling Sung, uh, married Sun Yat-sen, the leader of the 1911 Chinese Revolution. She then sought a third way, neither aligning with the fascists of Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang nor with the Chinese communists of Mao Zedong. Ultimately, she was honored by the Chinese Communist Party uh, after it modified, but she was vilified during the Cultural Revolution by the Red Guards uh, that eventually modified. The other two sisters, arguably more important, one is A. Ling Sung. She married H. H. Kung. She became a sinister Machiavellian, uh, Lucretia Borgia of China, uh, a, a very important, very secretive, very deadly woman who had teams of hired assassins in China and apparently elsewhere in Asia as well. She manipulated much of what went on under Chiang Kai-shek. Her husband, H.H. Kung, was the finance minister, the chief banker of China for much of that time, and he uh, and his wife, A. Ling, arrange for Mei Lang Sung, the youngest of the Sung sisters, to marry Chiang Kai-shek. She became Madame Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, the Kungs had some important children. Uh, David and Louis Kung were deeply involved in various aspects of Kuomintang corruption. We'll talk about David Kung in this program. Uh, they went on to become uh, a New York banker and a Dallas, Texas oil man, respectively. Uh, the family was not only very, very wealthy and incredibly influential, they were amazingly, almost unbelievably corrupt. And uh, the Kuomintang and Chiang Kai-shek, which was essentially a front for the syndicate of the Green Gang, perhaps the most in singularly important criminal syndicate in all of history, uh, the 
Kuomintang of Chiang Kai-shek was a kleptocracy, and uh, no one was more centrally involved in that kleptocracy than the Sung family. In uh, the conclusion to the remarkable book that we uh, are using for the bulk of our program, uh, Sterling Seagrave characterized the, the book as the Sung Dynasty, S-O-O-N-G. Sterling Seagrave described the Sungs as like a team of pickpockets working a county fair while the rubes watch geeks bite the heads off live chickens. That's not a bad summation. And we're going to be looking uh, not only at uh, how the pickpockets work the county fair, the county fair under the circumstances being not only China but the United States. We're going to take a look at one of the elements that kept the rubes, so to speak, watching geeks bite the heads off live chickens, and that is uh, the press, which became an important part of the China lobby. Specifically, we're going to take a look uh, at the beginning of the program, once again, at Time Incorporated, the hugely powerful publishing empire of Henry Luce. That included not only Time Magazine, but Fortune Magazine and Life Magazine as well. Henry Luce was the child of some missionaries in China, and along with his wife, the consummately powerful Claire Booth Luce, they had much to do with shaping uh, post-World War II America and the McCarthy period in particular. Uh, we will be looking at uh, how the power of the songs helped to shape the China lobby as we get uh, into this series, as we move toward its uh, conclusion. Uh, what we're going to be looking at in this program after beginning with how uh, Henry Luce twisted the reportage coming out of China by sincere journalists, not unlike the way the uh, reports of the China watchers in the State Department were nullified not only by the Songs and their agents, but also by anti-communist and right-wing ideologues who refused to see Chiang Kai-shek as the incompetent, corrupt gangster that he, in point of fact, was. Uh, they could only see his doctrinaire anti-communism, and to them, that made him a minor deity. As well, Chang converted to Christianity, and the professed Christianity, not only of Chiang Kai-shek, but also of Green Gang boss Tu Yuesheng, a major drug dealer, arguably the world's most important drug dealer in his time. Uh, this blinded uh, many people in America to the reality of Chiang Kai-shek and the Green Gang and the Kuomintang's narco-fascism. In this program, we're going to take a look at a top stockbroker in Shanghai who was arrested by CCK. That's Chang Ching Kuo. He was one of Chiang Kai-shek's sons. And very late in the war, uh, he tried to clean up the corruption in uh, what was left at that point of China uh, and uh, began executing literally some orders given out by Chiang Kai-shek. But he ran afoul, as we're going to see, uh, when he arrested not only David Kung, uh, again, the son of H.H. H. Kung and A. Ling Sung-nei, Madam Kung, but also a major 
power broker and extremely corrupt in nationalist China and later in the U.S. And uh, CCK Chang Ching Kuo also arrested a stockbroker who was also corrupt, but he was the son of Tu Yuasheng, and he was educated at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, not unlike the way many members of the Sung family, were, several of the Sung brothers, were educated at Harvard. This is worth noting not only because it gives us information about the evolution of the China lobby, but uh, the distortion in the coverage of China uh, prior to, during, and after World War II, in particular as the Cold War gathered momentum and as McCarthy, Joe McCarthy, and his aide Roy Cohn, who was the lawyer for and political mentor to Donald Trump, uh, began purging the State Department and executing witch hunts looking for, quote, who lost China, unquote, uh, the fact that it was Chiang Kai-shek, who was his enormous corruption, almost unbelievable corruption, uh, matched perhaps and surpassed in skill at least by that of the Sungs, that basically literally drove China into the arms of the communists. But uh, nobody wanted to hear that. So we're going to begin by talking about the closing phases of Chiang Kai-shek's regime. Uh, in our next several programs wrapping this up, we're going to jump back and forth in time to take a look at how this helped to shape the modern world. And the concretization of much of the post-World War II American deep state. Uh, and again, in uh, this program, we will be relying on a remarkable book by Sperling Seagrave, whose father, Gordon Seagrave, was the chief surgeon for General Joseph Stilwell, who was replaced as the senior American military commander in the China-Burma fever, because basically he didn't like Chiang Kai-shek, saw him to be the fundamentally dishonest, fundamentally corrupt creature that he was, and whereas Chiang wanted to harbor his husband, his military resources, to fight the Chinese communists, and would not fight with, and often uh, collaborated with the Japanese, Joseph Stilwell wanted him to fight the Japanese. That led ultimately to Stilwell's ouster and his replacement by Albert Cody Wiedemeyer, part of a pro-German uh, clique within the U.S. War Department, well, the, pre the predecessor to the Defense Department. Uh, Sterling Seagrave authored the book The Sung Dynasty in hardcover. It was published by Harper and Row, copyright 1985. Sadly, it is out of print, but there are hardcover and softcover editions available, and I emphatically encourage members of the listening audience to uh, get the book, read it, and tell others about it, and uh, as always, I don't get any money from this. Uh, this last chapter, uh, not the last chapter, but the, it was the last chapter for Chiang Kai-shek in China, is called Ashes, Ashes all fall down. And by the way, uh, in 1985, when Sterling Seagrave published this book, a uh, Kuomintang hit team was put together in Taiwan to come get rid of him. It forced uh, Sterling Seagrave and his wife Peggy to the camp to a sailboat where they lived for a number of years, uh, moving from place to place to stay ahead of their pursuers. Again, this chapter, Ashes, Ashes, 
all fall down. Journalist Theodore White posted the following sign in the shack that served as the Time magazine office in Chongqing. Quote, Any resemblance to what is written here and what is printed in Time magazine is purely coincidental, unquote. This reflected his increasingly pessimistic attitude about his ability, if not to change the course of China's destiny, at least to keep the American public informed of the events as he and observers like Stilwell, Service at Jack Service, and Davies, John Patton Davies of the State Department, saw them. And uh, talking about the way in which uh, the reportage for Time was twisted by Time magazine, the news editor, foreign news editor at Time magazine at this point in time was a guy named Whitaker Chambers. He is best known as the accuser of uh, Alger Hiss uh, in the hearings that were uh, uh, basically presided over by Richard Nixon when he was in Congress. In AFA program number one, we took a look at Whitaker Chambers. Uh, again, this was the foreign news editor of Time magazine. He kept a life-size picture of Adolf Hitler in his living room, as we looked at in AFA program number one. Uh, pause for just a minute. Think of how many people you know keep a life-size portrait of anyone in their living room. Imagine walking into someone's living room and they have a life-size portrait of Adolf Hitler in there. Well, what do you think? Well, I think it speaks for itself. And uh, skipping down about Theodore White, his reportage for Time magazine, and what Whitaker Chambers, with the blessings of Henry Luce, did with it. White wrote a hard-hitting report setting forth some of the real circumstances behind the Stilwell crisis. That is the replacement of General Stilwell by Wiedemeyer uh, at the request of Chiang Kai-shek, who couldn't stand Stilwell. The War Department liked him, but ultimately FDR knuckled under to uh, the China lobby, as it was as it came to be known uh, after World War II. He knuckled under to Chiang Kai-shek and related elements. One more time. White wrote a hard-hitting report setting forth some of the real circumstances behind the Stillwell crisis. The report was turned over by Luz Henry Luz to the new foreign editor at Time magazine, Whitaker Chambers, again, who kept a life-size portrait of Hitler in his living room, to be ground into oatmeal and, quote, edited into a lie, unquote. Chambers had no difficulty in using doublespeak and triple think to turn the whole Stillwell crucifixion upside down so that the issues at stake were all presented from the point of view of Chiang Kai-shek and General Claire Chenault of the American Volunteer Group. Stillwell was made to look like a country bumpkin who could not grasp the larger issues involved. Chang became the hero of the affair, and it was proclaimed that America had made a simple choice between a happy, democratic, prosperous, Christian China under Chiang Kai-shek and a sinister, communist China under Russian domination. White drafted a 45-page letter to Luce, angrily protesting this deliberate distortion of the record. 
Luce calmly replied that, quote, supporting Chang in Time Incorporated publications was no different from backing Winston Churchill, unquote. The argument raged over the wires. Three times White resigned, but Luce responded with soothing words and a salary raise like a father to an errant and naive son. Luce was a deity, and when you walked away from Time Incorporated, all professional paths led downhill, or a so folklore habit. Sucking hind teeth, that's T-E-A-P at Time Incorporated, was miles ahead of where everybody else in journalism had to find nourishment. Anyway, by then, Stillwell's career had collapsed. Luce's Gisimo one, uh, Henry Luce gave uh, General Gisimo Chang Kai-shek the nickname Gisimo, and his wife, Madam Chang Kai-shek, nay Mei-Ling Sung, the nickname Misimo. So it's Gisimo and Misimo. One more time. Anyway, by then, Stillwell's career had collapsed, Luce's Gisimo had won, and other issues had come and gone. White stayed on at Time Magazine, grieved, but hoping that all this would someday change. Without wife Mei Ling around to, quote, interpret, unquote, what he was, quote, saying, unquote, for his worldwide audience. By the way, I should preface this by saying that late in Chang's regime, uh, the extended family, the Kung family, and most of the Sungs appended to stage something of a palace coup. We talked about that in uh, the last part of our last program. It was discovered in Chiang Kai-shek's secret police crushed it, and uh, all the TV Sung left China for America, where they continued their losing. That included Mei Ling Song. She then came back to Taiwan after the war to uh, preside over the uh, anti-communist, uh, well, by that point, it was primarily a propaganda crusade because Chiang Kai-shek had lost the mainland and the camp to the island of Formosa. It had been a Japanese colony, but uh, in the Cairo talks, during World War II, something we looked at in 1142. For the record, 1142, uh, Mei Ling, Sung, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, and Chiang Kai-shek were major players, and the island of Formosa was given to Chiang Kai-shek uh, to be his after World War II, when he, uh, when the inevitable happened, and Chiang's corruption and uh, basically everything he did literally drove the Chinese people into the arms of the communists. He and the rest of what was left of the Kuomintang decamped to Formosa and Taiwan. And the, the island of Formosa is the nation of Taiwan. Then Mei Ling came back. However, at this point in time, she had fled, along with most of the rest of the clan, to the U.S., where they continued, basically, to dissemble and loot. Returning once again. Without Mei Ling around to, quote, interpret, unquote, what he was, quote, saying, unquote, for his worldwide audience, Chang was reverting to his pre-Sung family state, to the petulant demeanor of his early 20s, when he had been the enfant terrible of the Shanghai underworld. He was spending all his private time with old flames and old green gang cronies. Shang was aging and now preferred the public role of Confucian, ascetic, aloof from worldly matters. 
He was encouraged in this by the Chen brothers, who relieved the Generalissimo of the awful burden of decision-making by the, by the Chen brothers, the head of one of Chang's secret police organizations, the CBIS, and Tai Li, the Himmler, uh, Himmler of China, was the head of the other, the NBIS. Continuing. Chongqing retrogressed to a medieval mentality of Chinese court intrigue, dark assignations, and furtive alliances. Meanwhile, those who saw what was coming were preparing for disaster. So totally removed from reality did Chang become that he was struck by disbelief one day by rumors that his own soldiers were dropping dead of starvation in the streets. Corruption was keeping them from being fed the barest rations. He sent his eldest son, CCK, that's Chang Ching Kuo, to investigate. When CCK reported that it was true, Chang insisted on seeing for himself. CCK showed him army conscripts who had died in their bedrolls because of neglect. Chang was enraged and used his cane to lash the face of the officer in charge of conscripts. The culprit was jailed and another royal officer given the post. However, the starvation deaths continued. In August of 1944, the corpses of 138 starved soldiers were removed from the streets of Chongqing. Chang did not come out again to see. The Generalissimo's own Mein Kampf had now been published, giving glimpses of his increasingly precarious mental state, called China's Destiny. Its pages twisted history out of joint to blame the foreign powers for all of China's woes, including those that were particularly Chang's own doing. It oozed so much bigotry and dementia that those translating it into English began taking sick leave rather than face foreigners who were reading it. Of the Sung clan members who had sided with Chang long ago, T.V. Sung was the only one remaining in Chongqing during the last year of the war. T.V. had changed also. In Washington in 1941-42, he had seen how the game was played, and he had discovered that he could play it better than anyone else. T.V. had grown up. There was no longer any Harvard liberal confusion or moralizing. By the way, TV, like a PA, was educated at Harvard. Now, he had more real power than Chang and more real money than all but a handful of the world's super rich and the balance that he was about to correct in his favor. In Chongqing each evening, when journalists were not around, he dined on Kansas City steaks flown in exclusively for him. He was fond of his wife, Laura, whom he called by the nickname Ding Ding. Once, when she was ill, he was said to have sent a plane all the way to Connecticut to hurry back with a sprig of dogwood bloom for her. She had a soft spot for dogwood and was suitably touched. TV could now do Mei Ling's job better than Mei Ling. He was her, quote, faggot, unquote, the old British Army term meaning to stand in for somebody else at muster. 
He interpreted for Chang, had tea with politicians and diplomats he detested, made Chang feel good, said patriotic things when called upon, and portrayed the regime as a staunch supporter of human rights and social progress. He was totally absorbed with the discovery that he concentrated one more time. He was totally absorbed with the discovery that if he concentrated, he too could make Chang's lips move. Employed by Chang's government were a great many people, Chinese, Europeans, and Americans, involved exclusively in image protection, public relations, and propaganda. One of their jobs was to keep scandals out of the papers. And what we're going to look at next is one of many scandals and one of the many examples of losing uh, the post-World War II uh, China was once again enormously buttressed by tremendous amounts of aid from the United Nations. At this point, TV Sung became premier, and uh, not surprisingly, an awful lot of that aid went straight into the black market and or into the pockets of members of the Kuomintang and or into the bank accounts of the powerful and ever, ever more wealthy Sung family. We're also going to be taking a look at uh, another uh, almost stereotyped gambit in which uh, T.V. Sung and uh, Chiang Kai-shek basically launched a new yuan, that's Y-U-A-N, a Chinese, uh, the Chinese currency denomination, and this was to be backed by gold. In fact, it was a scam, the gold disappeared, the uh, gold yuan, so to speak, began trading at one, uh, one, uh, 11 million Chinese yuan, Chinese dollars to one U.S. dollar. And the beneficiaries of this, not surprisingly, were not only Chiang Kai-shek, not only the Sung family, TV Sung in particular, but Chu Yuasheng, Big Eared too, uh, the head of the Green Gang. And we're going to, and again, we're, we're going to be skipping around in time during the next uh, several concluding broadcasts. Uh, we'll be talking about the losing post-war. This is some of the losing immediately post-war. We're going to take a look at what Chang did just before he left China. That, however, in just a few minutes. On VJ Day, by that, by the way, for younger listeners, that was on the day that uh, Japan surrendered. On VJ Day, China had on paper at least 6 million ounces of gold and U.S. dollar reserves of more than $900 million, all of it from American taxpayers. By the way, that was in World War II dollars. That was a whole lot of money. One more time. On VJ Day, China had on paper at least 6 million ounces of gold and U.S. dollar reserves of more than $900 million, all of it from American taxpayers. Despite this great reserve of hard currency and gold, the China lobby was so energetic that foreign aid continued to pour into China at an astonishing rate. The United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, UNRRA, shipped more than $685 million worth of U.S. goods, food, clothing, 
and equipment to China between 1945 and 1947. Again, that was a whole lot more money than it is today. Added to this was an $83 million U.S. loan from TV's old friends at the Export-Import Bank and a long-term loan of $60 million U.S. from Canada. In order, as he put it, to, quote, preserve the dignity of the Chinese people, unquote, TV Sun insisted that the full legal control of these foreign aid supplies must rest with the Chinese. Shang had tried this gambit before in 1944, and there was no harm in asking. Incomprehensibly, I think that is tongue-in-cheek by uh, Sterling Seagrave, but incomprehensibly, the loan agencies agreed with TV Sung's suggestion. They agreed, even though it was scuffled at high levels in Washington and London, that by the end of the war, TV Sung was one of the richest men on earth, with huge holdings in some of the world's biggest corporations, from which he had found creative ways to buy war materiel. Felix Green quoted a friend of TV's that his assets in America alone were over 47 million U.S. dollars by 1944. Again, that's a lot of money today. A high-level source in the British Foreign Office alleged in a 1953 interview that, quote, TV Sung owns the controlling interest in your General Motors, doesn't he, unquote? When told that American officials generally assumed that it was GM, not, but it was not GM, but DuPont, one more time. When told that American officials generally assumed it was not GM, but DuPont, the Foreign Office official snapped, quote, well, there are ways to disguise ownership, aren't there, unquote. By the way, uh, the DuPont family owned not only DuPont chemicals, but for a long time, General Motors. That was why for a long time, if you bought a GM car, you've got DuPont accessories with it. Continuing. After TV Sun was named Premier, he created a special agency, the Chinese National Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, or CMRRA, to oversee the distribution of UN relief goods. The deal he struck with the U.S. government and the United Nations was that UNRRA would relinquish all types of the supplies the moment the goods touched down on any Chinese wharf. In other countries, UN officials stayed with the goods throughout to see their proper distribution. The wharfs where most of these goods landed, the warehouses where the goods were stored, and the transportation companies that moved them, including China Merchants Steam Navigation Company, were owned by Big Ear 2 to Yuasheng. This was a situation ready-made for abuse. Boy, that is understatement, isn't it? As relief goods began to arrive, they were immediately diverted into black market channels. When blood plasma donated by the American Red Cross showed up for sale in Shanghai drugstores for $25 a pint, the U.S. Navy Shore Patrol seized the rest of the 3,500 cases, which were sitting in a Shanghai warehouse. After giving all this money to China for humanitarian purposes and meeting TV's unusual terms, UNRRA discovered that it had to foot the bill for all shipping, unloading, storage, and transportation. This 
was no small amount. When TV presented the, quote, administrative, unquote, bill for these costs to the UNRRA accountants, it came to a choking 190 million U.S. dollars. Again, that's a lot of money today. This is at the end of World War II. Shanghai and Figure 2 had used the fear of communism to extort millions from the Shanghai merchants in 1927. Now, Shang was using the fear of a communist takeover to obtain millions from the U.S. Fear served him well. With hyperinflation soon to hit the incredible exchange rate of 11 million Chinese dollars to one U.S. dollar, the Chang regime secretly prepared to issue a new form of currency with the new banknotes, quote, backed, unquote, by gold, a so-called gold yuan, unquote. The plan called for all Chinese to turn in all their discredited old-style FAP banknotes and all their personal holdings of silver and gold in exchange for the new banknotes. The gold and silver would be, re- would be redeemed at an artificial rate set by the government. This is one of the oldest cons on earth. This meant that people who had managed to hang on to any gold or silver through the war would be forced to ex- accept new banknotes of doubtful value at a ridiculous rate of exchange. Anyone able to survive a day as a small shopkeeper in China could see through it but nobody was to be given any choice whatsoever. The opportunity to take advantage of this currency reform, unquote, existed for anyone who knew what date the change would take place. Here was the sort of large-scale scam for which the famous gold scandal had been only a warm-up. This time, the leak of secret information came from T.V. Sung himself. TV apparently alerted a number of his favorite Kuomintang army officers, 293 of them in Shanghai alone, to withdraw their gold from Shanghai banks before the date in question. Ungraciously, somebody in that group spread the word around. Panic struck Shanghai. There was a gold rush as hundreds of important depositors withdrew their gold from the banks. Millions of dollars in private gold was yanked out of the government's grasp by its rightful owners. The panic spread to other cities. The Generalissimo was infuriated. He had been made a laughingstock in front of the nation. This time, he had had enough of TV's song. TV was officially charged with causing the gold rush, unquote. Shang ordered him to resign as premier, removed him from all other government posts, and told the Chen brothers to conduct a secret investigation of all of TV's financial dealings. Until the investigation was complete, Shang pressed upon TV a consolation post as governor and pacification commissioner, unquote, of Guangzhou province. This gave TV a period of grace to clear his immense wealth out of China through his branch banks in Canton and Hong Kong, and time to liquidate most of his properties. In his resignation speech before the executive yuan, which he had headed as premier, TV spoke familiar words. Quote, the truth can be told in one sentence. The present economic crisis is the cumulative result 
of heavily unbalanced budgets carried through eight years of war and one year of illusory peace, accentuated to some degree by speculative activities, unquote. In the fall of 1947, the Chen brothers completed the investigation they had been ordered to conduct and submitted a 15,000-word report charging TV with, quote, mismanagement of foreign funds, unquote. The report stated that a certain group of privileged corporations had had expended funds and supplies for, quote, purposes other than the import of materials for reconstruction, unquote. No, no kidding, so Dave. I can't imagine how that would have happened. Obviously, that is my sarcastic interjection. Continuing, the privileged group included Dr. Sung and his China Development Finance Corporation, T.L. Sung's Food Sung Trading Corporation, and the Yangtze Development Corporation, headed by David Kung. Again, T.L. Sung, one of the TV's brothers, and uh, the head of... Uh, when we at first just in China, but then in America. And David Kung is one of the sons of H. H. Kung and A. Lang Sung. Continuing. Once TV had been relieved of his posts and packed off to Guangdong province, investigators had discovered that roughly half of China's reserves of hard foreign currency and gold bullion was missing, including half of $900 million U.S., currency and half of the six million ounces of gold that were supposed to be in China's treasury while TV had the key. Where had it all gone? Gardner Cowles, C-O-W-L-E-S, the plain-talking publisher of the Des Moines Register, went to China on a tour after the war and came back with this story which appeared in September of 1947. Quote, At the dinner party in Shanghai, an irate critic of the present government said to me, quote, China will never find herself until she gets rid of the Sung family. Why, they have more than a billion dollars in their personal accounts in Washington, London, and Amsterdam banks. When he walked away a moment later, a high official of the Bank of China said to me, quote, don't believe such foolishness. They don't have more than $800 million on deposit. That's, by the way, 80% of a billion. And again, uh, for listeners who have grown up in the present period, that was a lot more money in the immediate aftermath of World War II than it is today. Now, again, very belatedly, Chiang Kai-shek sent out uh, Chiang Xingquo, his son, to uh, purge China of corruption. Now, that was highly selective, as we will see. Two of the people he wound up uh, sweeping in were not only the son of Tu Yuasheng, big mistake, as Arnold Schwarzenegger would have said it, but also David Kung, who was the son of H.H. Kung and A. Leng Sung, arguably the most Machiavellian and most deadly, if not the most overtly wealthy, of the Sung family. Speaking of Chang Chen Kuo, he waged a ruthless war against corruption, against black marketeers and currency speculators, ranging far and wide with his Moscow-style security cadres, holding street-corner tribunals and sidewalk executions. But then, Chang Chen Kuo made two terrible mistakes. He arrested stockbroker Tu Weipeng, that's capital P-U, capital W-E-I, hyphen P, apostrophe ing 
The young broker was accused of having dumped 30 million shares of stock on the market just before the currency reform was about to take effect. Apparently, he had been given advance word by his father, Green Gang boss Chu Yuesheng, the son of Big Year Chu, a graduate of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, was tried and sentenced by Chang Chingko so fast that it was all over before anyone was dimly aware that he had been arrested. Young Chu was given a relatively mild jail sentence of eight months, not for the fact that he had illegally obtained information about the currency reform, but on a technicality of having sold the shares outside of the regular exchange. He did not serve the time, for that would have been pressing his father a bit much, but his arrest, trial, and conviction were a clear sign that times had changed. After the war, Big Year Two's grip slipped because of his age and bad health from years of drug addiction. He was also under pressure from war profiteering rivals who wanted to break the Green Gang hold. Now in his 60s, and not at all well, Chu was in no mood to take up again the daily administration of the gang's operations. It was hard to concentrate on reorganizing the old Shanghai operations when the Reds were steamrolling across Manchuria and moving ever southward. Big Year 2, Chu Yuesheng, the head of the Green Gang, began shifting his assets to Hong Kong. And we're going to talk more about Hong Kong at the end of the program. What cued the uh, present uh, unrest and the leaders and the organizations uh, are in, in contact with and in many cases receive financing from U.S. intelligence cutouts. Uh, the Hong Kong unrest was cued by an extradition law. Hong Kong had no extradition treaty with mainland China or anyone else. That is basically an extension of the extraterritoriality that uh, Great Britain won in China through the Opium Wars. Uh, we'll talk more about that, but that is very much a sticking point with uh, the Chinese, and understandably so. And uh, what we're going to talk, out, talk about next is uh, one of the very last acts that um, Chiang Kai-shek got into. And uh, this was as uh, he basically, his regime was going down. One of the last things he did was to collaborate with Big Ear 2. Uh, so sort of the Big Ear 2's farewell tour. And that was to loot the Bank of China, of the gold reserves that were left and that weren't uh, basically uh, swept up as a result of the gold yuan hoax. Before he was getting ready to decamp, or as he was getting ready to decamp in Taiwan, if he was to leave President Li holding the bag, Chang evidently wanted to be sure that the bag was empty. This meant no payroll for Li's dwindling armies, no food for the soldiers still holding out. When Lee discovered that his treasury had been emptied, he pleaded with U.S. Ambassador John Leighton Stewart for American aid to allow him to negotiate with Mao from a position of strength. Ambassador Stewart advised him to ask for patriotic contributions from the Kuomintang officials who had salted away billions of American aid in their foreign bank accounts. Chiang Kai-shek summoned Sun Fo, S-U-N, and then F-O, 
with capital S and capital F, and made the kind of suggestion that was certain to electrify the poor fellow into folly. Chang suggested that this was the time to establish a separatist government in Canton, just as Dr. Sun Yat-sen had done so many years before. The Generalissimo promised the doctor's son that if he did this, Chang would be able to launch a new northern expedition. Sun Fo hurried off to Canton, but before the month was out, even the lackluster Sun Fo came to his senses and left quickly for exile in France. Chang's real reason for coming to town was to get Big-Eared Tuke and the Green Gang to help him rob the Bank of China. He wanted the money badly. He had no intention of fleeing to Taiwan without it. His hopes for the gold yuan had collapsed after only a few months when word got out that there really was no gold to back the new currency. The gold had been there at one time, six million ounces of it. While half of that vanished with the Sungs and the Kungs, according to official charges, the remaining half had just vanished. What gold there was left in China was private gold still in this bank. The gold yuan hoax was Chang's parting shot at history. Five months after the gold yuan was introduced at an artificial exchange rate of four gold yuan to one U.S. dollar, the rate plummeted to one million to one. After that, it went crazy. The people who suffered most were those earnest souls who somehow had managed to save one or two thousand U.S. dollars worth of gold in the course of a lifetime and obeyed Chang's orders and brought it to government banks on the prescribed day to trade for gold wands. When the gold wands became worthless overnight, they could be seen sitting in tea shops in Shanghai or Hankou or Canton in the state of shock, abandoned by the Kuomintang, and certain to be persecuted as capitalists by the communists, sitting there without even enough coppers to spirit hit the wife and children out of the country to Macau or Hong Kong before the roof caved in. They were the last of Chang's constituents. Chang's plans for the Bank of China had been laid with considerable care. A dingy freighter was tied up on the Bund opposite the Café Hotel. Its coolie crew, dressed in filthy rags, were hand-picked naval ratings in disguise. Several executives at the Bank of China had been given large bribes and a promise of passage to safety on the waiting freighter in return for opening the vaults. Nationalist troops cordoned off an area of several blocks around the bank, including part of the Nanking Road and the Bund. Out of the darkness came the steady chant of, quote, coolies, unquote, as they carried their heavy loads. Each man carried two parcels on a bamboo pole. They were ghoulish in the light of arc lamps illuminating the way from the bank to the freighter. Amazed, George Vine, a British correspondent, watched the proceedings unnoticed from his office where he had been working late on the dispatch. When he realized what was happening, he cabled his London office with an oddly philosophic message that, quote, all the gold in China was being carried away in the traditional manner by coolies, unquote. With this, Chu Yuasheng pulled his last heist. 
He slipped out of Shanghai just days before the communists entered the city triumphant on May 25th. He lived the last two years of his life in Hong Kong, the city to which he had shifted his assets. With decades of hard drugs caught up with him, he could no longer walk. Paralysis set in, and on the 16th of August, 1951, he died. Chiang Kai-shek sent a message from Taipei commending Big Ear Tube to posterity for his loyalty, unquote, and integrity, unquote. Chang fled to Taiwan himself aboard a gunboat early in May of 1949. But notice again that uh, Tuyua Shang's son was not only a stockbroker, but he had been educated at MIT. And uh, as we looked at in, one of the, in a couple of the early programs in this series, uh, Tuyua Shang, Bigger Tu's kids, grew up with the children of H.H. H. Kung and Ailing Kung, a May Ailing Sung. And uh, again, for people who think, well, this is long ago and far away, no. The money, the political connections growing out and around that money, the corporate connections, and the political and journalistic elements, such as the loose publishing empire, which carried water for these elements, uh, were key elements of what became the China lobby. And money is uh, something that, not, not only does money talk, uh, the only thing my never says is goodbye, but not only does money talk, uh, it keeps on talking, and it talks even after the people who own the money have passed into posterity. And what we're going to look at uh, next is uh, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, flight to Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan, the island of Formosa, had been granted to Chiang Kai-shek uh, during the Cairo talks. And uh, although history in this country has not uh, recorded it very effectively, uh, Chiang Kai-shek and uh, his Kuomintang were not welcomed by the people on Taiwan. In January of 1950, Madame Chiang Kai-shek arrived in Taiwan from New York to set up housekeeping. The island did not welcome the Kuomintang. It was driven into submission by terror. Here was one of the world's truly fortunate islands, fertile, temperate, with cliff-lined seascapes and misty peaks that unrolled each dawn from the skull of night. During decades of Japanese rule, the island had become economically self-reliant. But after World War II, the Allies had turned it over to Chiang as part of a secret agreement made during the Cairo talks. Chiang forced Taiwan to heal. There were massacres. In the first, 10,000 Taiwanese were slain by Kuomintang troops in riots in downtown Taipei. 20,000 more were put to death before Chiang was firmly established on Taiwan. Those Taiwanese leaders who were still alive went underground or slipped out to Tokyo. On an island of such moderate proportions, Chang's secret police and armed forces were effective in a way they never had been on the mainland. They gave Taiwan the treatment that Chang had given Shanghai in Black April of 1927. And uh, we should remember, too, that uh, although the Taiwanese uh, did not welcome Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Taiwan itself had been a major 
focal point, a locus of much of the Japanese uh, heroin and morphine refining business uh, that was overseen by Kadama Yoshio, who collaborated very effectively with the Kuomintang and the Chiang Kai-shek. Again, in this program, we looked at uh, some of the losing of not only China, but the U.S., the directing by T.V. Sung and Associates of the tremendous amount of United Nations relief that was granted to post-World War II China into the coffers of the Kuomintang or into the coffers of the Sung family. We've taken a look at the uh, introduction of the, quote, Gold Yuan, unquote, by Chiang Kai-shek. Supposedly the failing currency was going to be backed by gold, but the word got out and uh, basically the gold yuan became worthless, and those people who had gold basically yanked it out of the bank. And then just before decamping to Taiwan, Chiang Kai-shek and Tu Yuasheng looted what gold was left in the Bank of China. That had belonged to Chinese citizens. Uh, This is representative of the behavior not only of the uh, Kuomintang, but of the Sung family. And as we get into our next programs, we are going to be taking a look at uh, the further coalescence, the concretization of what became the China lobby. That, as we will see and as we will muse about in uh, the concluding programs, uh, Again, there's several more in this series. That became a key part of the American deep state. And as we uh, arch for what I think is going to be a third world war with China, something that will certainly uh, collapse the global economy and is likely to lead to the deaths of untold numbers of people, this is a key part of the foundation of what took place. And again, note that although Tu Yuasheng, bigger too, was uh, a, a Shanghai gangster. His son was educated at MIT. Uh, David Sung and Louis, uh, David Kung and Louis Kung uh, became a New York banker and a Dallas, Texas oil man. So these are powerful economic interests, and the money that they invested in the U.S., uh, in Europe, in Brazil, a major focal point for uh, T.V. Sung's investment, did not go away. And that money is one of the things that is driving affairs today. So uh, please be aware of that. We're going to, in our next program, take a look at uh, the collaboration not only of the U.S., but of the Treasury Department in spiriting what gold was still left in China, out of China, in collaboration with uh, not only the fledgling CIA, but also Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang Kai-shek as well. And uh, the Seagraves uh, interviewed a pilot named Eric Schilling, who flew for the CIA and uh, civil air transport after the war. It was Eric Schilling, by the way, who was responsible for the, he, he got the idea for painting the shirts noses on the flying tigers. Those are actually short noses, but they became known as tigers. However, we'll talk about that in our next program because this concludes for the record program number 1204, the narco-fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, part 11. This is being recorded on September 15th of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun. <laughs>